Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Prolty. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Edward Walker, Vice President and Shared Economy Practice Leader at Hub International Insurance Services. On today's episode, Ed will discuss how the company's facilitating a new era of mobility by providing comprehensive insurance. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Grayson. Good morning or good afternoon on your side of the country. Good to see you. Well, we wish you were on the East Coast and not the West Coast, but that's a that's a story for, for offline. When we're going to talk about today one of the most important topics that I geek out on, insurance, because without insurance, there are no autonomous vehicles. Without insurance, there are no rideshare vehicles. Without insurance, frankly, there's no economy because it would collapse under its own weight. Ed, how is the insurance industry current sorry red how is insurance currently impacting the mobility markets you know i would say grace it's a great question just generally speaking it's the cause of or solution to most operators problems nowadays and what why you get that is is a variety of different factors you know the market itself is in a very troublesome state so you're not you're not just finding that rates are difficult but you're also finding that the various products from the insurance community towards the rideshare ecosystem vary by state vary by carrier. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of scalability issues that can be posed with a you know multi-state exposure. You know, there are a handful of considerations to take as an operator, depending on your geographical exposure, depending on your your ownership of vehicles. It's a, it's a critical and, and and deep piece of your of, of your success as an operation to really get your hands on the insurance and understand why you're making the choices you are and what what opportunities you have elsewhere to really improve not not just your price and your premiums, but really your day your day to day, you know, quality of life managing the program. It's interesting you say multi state exposure. You're based in LA and I've heard stories, read stories where an Uber driver picks an individual up and say LA and, and drives them to Vegas. Does that Uber driver or Lyft driver do they have to have a policy in either state since they're quote unquote doing interstate commerce or what does that look like from an insurance perspective? Well, it's an interesting because you have to look at that from the company side. So if it's on the Uber and Lyft side and you also have to look at, for, at it from the driver side, you know, I would say routinely from a personal line standpoint, there are also two, a couple different ways to look at this as, as let's say you're the Uber driver. And for example, you know, are you routinely making these trips? Are you routinely traveling to Las Vegas? Then absolutely. It's something you need to be addressing with your own personal lines carrier. You know, from the corporate side on the commercial fleet policy, very strong likelihood that there is interconnectivity, at least between California and uh, and Las Vegas, you know, in Nevada. However, on the personal side, you know, it, it, you got to understand, is it more of a one off or is this a habitual trip that you're making? May, and maybe it is. Maybe you have a profitable way to find yourself to Las Vegas. Maybe you love the city, you know, but there are a lot of considerations to take. And I'd say mostly on the driver side at least with operators like Uber or Lyft, who have gotten their, their risk management profiles a little bit more ironed out than most. Ironed out more than most. We saw what happened with Lyft in the markets this week when they had to take that insurance hit. They, they got crushed. Uber seems to have it better now. Uber seems to be running a better business. They're, they're selling off their real estate for cloud services. They got the deal with Oracle and Google Cloud. They're cutting costs. I think Dara Kawasaki is doing a wonderful job there. But I want to stay on the driver's theme here for a moment. I'm a, I'm a rideshare driver. I drive for Uber and Lyft. What type of insurance do I have to have? Can I go to Geico, Allstate, Farmers and said, buy insurance? Do I have to get a, a special amendment to it? What does that look like? 
Well, again, not to make state specifics a, a big highlight of what we're doing today, but you know, depending on where you are as an Uber and Lyft driver, if you're in Illinois, if you're in Florida, if you're in California, or if you're in, say, Ohio, your opportunities to really seek a competitive and aggressively and well-worded policy, you know, with broad coverage towards you as a, as a business, you know, are going to be limited depending on where you are. For example, in California right now, I'd say there are less than five carriers that are entertaining the rideshare space for drivers alone. And that market's actually shrinking. And a big piece for that is very recently, you know, well, you, you get, actually, I'll take a step back and say, whenever you add in a rideshare exposure, you know, and this is both for the commercial side and the personal side, you're, you're dealing with insurance carriers that, you know, depending on who you're speaking to, have a very limited bandwidth of understanding of what you do for a business. And so you have to build that into your understanding of who you're talking to and just how much risk they think they're taking versus how much risk you think you're taking as a driver. So this is an insurance community that's not necessarily always well set up from an actuarial standpoint to price out these models. And what you get from that is a lot of variance between different carriers and what they charge for rideshare endorsements and the like. You know, and when you pair that with a state like California, where actually the director of insurance very recently rejected many insurance companies, you have to file your rates with the insurance commissioner if you would like to change them. A lot of these, these carriers in the state of California, including, you know, your bigger Cadillac brands such as Allstate, you know, they reported, I believe, 45% of their $2 billion underwriting loss last year came from the state of California alone. Okay, and I bring that up not just not to scrutinize Allstate because, hey, you know, they took a chance. They wanted to make it work. But at the end of the day, you, you have a constricting market in California where the regulators themselves are also not giving the insurance companies an incentive to stay. This is a recipe for disaster. You currently have five carriers. You mentioned some carriers are leaving a shrinking market. That's going to lead to increased prices. And on the backside of that, we have a 6.5% headline inflation rate. The first thing to go, you look at any auto data, Bank of America publishes a lot of really good data on this. The first thing to go is auto insurance. What can I cut back on? How are they going to enforce it if drivers say, yep, I'm not going to get the endorsement. I'm just going to get the cheapest policy. Or for a matter of fact, just what is it? One in, one in three Californians don't have insurance and they drive without insurance. Well, then what happens? It's a great question. I mean, it, it's um, it could be pandemonium. I mean, it's really a situation where right now more Americans are driving. You know, California that that's one piece of the pie, but most Americans right now are sorry. The highest percentage of Americans currently in the history of automobile insurance are are not carrying insurance. And that now this means your exposure is just a personal driver going to the grocery store or a rideshare driver is enhanced because when other individuals do not carry insurance it actually presents a, a complication to the system where you, you can no longer rely on another individual should they even be at fault for an accident. You know, if they don't carry any insurance and you, and you have a $60,000 car and you have to go to the hospital for medical bills, you know, you're going to have to take that person to small claims court before you see a dime of money that they're going to give you towards, you know, making you whole. And, you know, again, we're seeing a trend of this increasing. So what I've been doing with a lot of my own clients is making sure that they up there on the fleet side is making sure that they increase their limits on uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage to make sure that they can account for this rising exposure. That's scary. You've got a, an economic time bomb ticking here. Let's go down this even further. Let's say we got Bob or, or Mary, the rideshare drive, and they're driving around on the cheapest insurance known to man. Let's call it the the state minimum legal, and they don't have a rideshare endorsement. They get into a crash or hit somebody on, on a bicycle. What happens? Do they have any protection? 
Yes, but again, it, it depends on the severity of the claim. So in, in a lot of instances, and I get this question a lot. So in a lot of instances, if you have a fender bender as an Uber or Lyft driver, and let's say we're using your example of someone purchasing state minimum coverages. Okay, if you have a fender bender and you're delivering a passenger, you know, in, in a lot of situations, if it's a smaller claim, you know, adjusters you know, are trying to use their time as efficiently as possible. If we're dealing with a fender bender less than 5,000, you know, $7,500 for a repair, they're going to want to fix it as quickly as possible, especially if there's no bodily injury involved. And really in a situation where you have not purchased a rideshare endorsement as a driver, you know, for, for smaller fender benders and the like, you're, you're usually not going to see much of a pushback from the insurance world. Now, again, I want to caveat that by saying they could push back at any time. Should an adjuster, adjuster come in and have the incentive to figure out truly what happened? Where was the accident? Who are we talking about? What were you doing at the time of the accident? And you don't have your story ironed out perfectly to, to omit the concept that you were with an Uber or a Lyft or a DoorDash at the time. That adjuster will have every possible legal grounds to deny that claim. So it could it could a situation occur where those claims get paid? On the smaller end, yeah, you're going to see a, a high percentage of those likely paid just due to time constraints and people trying to be efficient. However, if you have a total loss, if you injure under, uh, uh, third parties, you know, if you have any sort of significant damage involved in this accident or, or you know, collateral damage, you're going to have a high level ad adjuster coming in there asking a whole bunch of questions and they're going to get to the bottom of the fact that you were driving for business use. And they're going to have every right in the world to deny that claim. And so that's why you see Uber and Lyft so strongly recommend that drivers do help themselves by purchasing this rideshare endorsement, because in most situations, it will cover you for the gray areas, which still exist within the rideshare model, you know, even for the most, you know, scrutinous of drivers, you know, somebody just being as thorough as possible. You know, there, there are new holes that come through with coverage every day. The legal precedents in the space have yet to be set. So all you can do as a driver is, is, is your best to try to make sure that you can make up for the downfalls of any of the insurance or, or sorry, any of the operator based insurance you're partnering with. The claims denied. What happens? So if the claim is denied, you you essentially have yourself to help you help yourself out of the accident. So if you if your claim is denied, the insurance company no longer has any right to defend you or any duty to defend you. Sorry. So in that situation, you know, I've heard a lot of horror stories from drivers about situations where they, they were sent to the hospital. They were out of work for months on end and had no means of, of remediation outside of their own insurance, which again, we're talking about if we're talking about state minimums, you know, or and or a situation where it's denied, you know, you can be facing a, a pretty pesky situation. And you know me personally, and I know you personally, my, my wife has this great saying, buy really good insurance because you sleep well at night, you might pay more for it now, but you sleep well at night because you want to have it in case a, a catastrophe happens here. I want to add some financial context to this here, Ed. What's the average cost for a rideshare endorsement? How much does it vary from state to state? And is there a competitive market from insurance company to insurance company? So typically, rideshare insurance can cost anywhere between, you know, and it depends on if you're talking about like a six month or 12 months policy. It can be anywhere. And, and I also need to caveat this by saying the market has just recently constricted. You know, these numbers might be somewhat outdated. But on a general basis, you know, across the states, you're probably dealing with, you know, anywhere from $25 to $50 additional per month, anywhere to, you know, sometimes on the high end between $100 and $200 a month. Again, it's going to it's, it's going to matter very particularly on you as a driver. Is this your only car? 
Are you working with a carrier with your homeowner's insurance, with your life insurance? Are you cross-selling? Do you have other individuals in your household? How much do your vehicle cost? There are a lot of factors that go into this. I'll also throw in the fast fact that, you know, electric vehicles, you know, in the trends we're seeing these days, you know, I, I couldn't actually give you an ironclad reason outside of maybe repair costs, and, you know, time of repair. But EVs right now in the personalized market are generally 28% more, more expensive than their former counterparts. Sorry, their, their ICE, you know, internal combustion engine counterparts. But yet, if you use the Uber app, I'm an Uber customer. Sometimes they're cheaper than the UberX. But yet, if, if I'm the driver, I have to pay more to insure it. You got an upside down market. How does this scale? Because you're saying, okay, on the low end, you got $300 a year to $2,400 a year. That's a big hit, especially with going into a, a global downturn. And the Fed's going to have to raise rates again. They're going to have to sink the economy. A soft landing. Jay Powell, hope you can do it, but it's not looking good. Looking more like we're getting to a hard landing and we're going to have mass unemployment. Then what happens? It's a great question. You know, it's it's a it's a situation that I run into a lot with with speaking to my customers, and that we're we're continuously moving into a difficult rate environment for both their drivers and their platforms, and they're being very extremely limited as to what they can do. Now, there's a lot of solutions to com combat claims activity and making sure we're paying the right claims that are that are being brought forth to us. But the market itself, you know, I would say the amount of fraud, especially with regards to automobile liability, you know, social inflation. You know, a claim that cost $5,000 10 years ago, the exact same circumstance now will cost $50,000. You know, there, there are numerous factors that are all playing into this, all which do not bode well for the overall community. I'm touching a hot iron here. We need tort reform. I repeat, we need tort reform. It, it, it's tort, it, We need it because it's costing the American people as we go into, an, into especially to an economic recession, potentially. They're, har they're hard-earned money. We need tort reform. Ambulance changers need to go bye-bye. So I want to give some context. There's a great report that came out this week from, from Bank of America on a potential economic downturn in the rideshare industry. The Bank of America analysts estimate that as many as 450,000, I repeat, 450,000 new drivers could flock to Uber and Lyft this year. And an additional 600,000 new carriers could give DoorDash, Inc. and Uber Eats a try. If, if Bank of America is correct, what's the impact on the insurance market? You said that we've got a shrinking market. We've got increased prices. All these new these new individuals are coming out of drive. Is there enough capacity? I certainly think capacity could be an issue. I think right now in the insurance world, there are a lot of very bright minds, you know, that have caught the attention of the space and the issues that we're dealing with. I think the insurance community, while we do generally move at a glacial pace, you know, we have the charge ahead of us as to what we need to accomplish. But, you know, Grayson, one of the interesting things I think about that article is, is it didn't actually, I, I, I didn't see any details about age demographics, about who's leaving the workforce. Because I did also see another article the other day that was really insightful on Generation Z, in, in particular, not purchasing cars. And actually, the, 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 the exploration goes even further into they're not even getting their licenses anymore. Now, whether this is because of environmental reasons, cultural reasons, you know, doesn't really matter for the purposes of our conversation. But, you know, perhaps they're, they're you know, the, the study I was reading actually went into they might be the new generation that's moving into scooters, that's moving into Vespas and smaller, smaller transportation units in order to get around town. So this this is actually a different sliver of the insurance community that would be covering this is, you know, in other words, a different line of insurance, technically, depending on if it's Vespa or scooter that might be impacted. So maybe we have an additional capacity, um, you know, fluck, you know, uh, ability or efficiency here that we can draw upon and being that it's not just all focused on automobile liability, but in general, yeah, I mean, it's gonna be a complicated space with all these influx of drivers. 
you know, I'd say the one piece of, of solace I have in this is that generally speaking in insurance, the bigger of a group you have to insure, the more predictable it becomes. So I think a nice sliver of, you know, a silver lining within this is that the, I mentioned it before, the actuarial tables, you know, the understanding from the insurance community of truly how to capture the risk, okay, and make money off of it. Let's not all forget that if insurance companies make money on this, this is good for everybody. You know, that's why we have brokers like myself in the ring to make sure they're not making too much money. You need data to how to understand the risk. There's historical elements throughout society of, of insurance markets that's collapsed. Divorce insurance, that market collapsed. The pet insurance collapsed. Unemployment insurance collapsed in the private sector, not, not, not the government social aspect. Because people rigging game the system. Oh, okay, well, let's figure out how to cut costs. You start throwing in scooters, you throw Vespas into this equation. They're dangerous. You get hit, you die. You fall off, you go to the hospital. What does that figure into the underwriting algorithms? How are you getting data from those types of vehicles and says, oh, I swear, Mr. or Mrs. Insurance, I only drive 20 miles an hour in my Vespa. I don't cut through traffic. Well, there, there's a famous word that starts with a B and has an S in the middle of it. That's what I would say to that if I'm an insurance person. How, how do you insure for that? You know, uh, a lot of carriers have revised their approaches over time and getting to know, especially like to say this, the shared scooter industry itself, um, especially with e-bikes and, you know, smaller electric vehicles that don't necessarily classify as a private passenger vehicle, which would mean the shift to say a general liability policy to an automobile liability policy. You know, a lot of protective measures in, are in place. You know, they have speed limiters that they like to propose. They like to, like, a lot of carriers won't even entertain some of these risks, especially e-bikes, which which quite frankly tend to be a little bit higher focused these days than shared scooters just because of the associated loss trends they've seen between the two different categories of micromobility. But various carriers have different approach, a lot of which comes down to limiting speed. But I think there are a lot of, you know, extra factors here, Grayson, especially with regards to infrastructure that make this situation even more complicated. Because what do you see when you're in Santa Monica or Florida or Miami? What do you see most people, where do you see most people riding their shared scooters on the sidewalk? And where do where do 98% of all bodily injury claims happen with shared scooters? On the sidewalk. And why are they on the sidewalk? They are on the sidewalk because they don't feel safe on the road. Because we, do, we have not yet invested in, in the infrastructure to support this business. I've had colleagues from European countries come to Santa Monica. You know, I live here in Culver City and look around the roads and say, Ed, why would anyone use an e-bike or a shared scooter here? This is dangerous. And so it's a two-pronged issue. I wouldn't necessarily say it all lies on underwriting. I would say a lot of this is, is the, the general support of this new means of transportation as a culture and you know, as a country. How do you get people to buy into it? I'm, I'm going to give a very public example here. Rebel, they they did the the shared scooters. They had to leave Miami because nobody wore the helmet, and there was a few fatalities that were publicly reported in the Miami Herald. There was incidents, zooming in and out around traffic, not wearing helmets. They couldn't enforce it. So if you're trying to get a cultural change, let's a cultural change towards safety, they're not listening to it. Do you, as the the underwriter, have to increase the rates because? your risk is so much higher? And does that risk live with the individual that's running the scooter? Or does that risk live with the fleet operator? That's a that's a perfect example of when, it, when you talk to sh about sharing economy models in general, scooters, cars, you name it. A lot of the issues that present themselves are as a result of the autonomy the operator themselves are seeking. So for example, like in your example of helmets, 
what you know, I, I know I've worked with many of these operators. It's a really difficult chore getting these helmets to people, and even more difficult to get them to wear it. You know, there have been uh, there have been many different means tried in order to you know make this happen. They've been trying. They they they. Um, I believe in the early days, Lime had a website you could go to where you could click and have a helmet shipped to you immediately. And while these are good, insightful ideas, this does not pair well with the on-demand nature of these models. So you kind of have a push-pull here, here between how long do you want someone to take in getting or picking up this Vesca scooter and, and the like? How long does that process want to take in the competitive environment? You know, is, is my competitor going to do this? Because if their scooter is right next to mine and I say, hey, you got to wait here for someone to show up or, you know, you got to go to this storefront here and pick up, even if it's free, that's a friction in the system and something that customers, you know, don't necessarily support. So it, this is a push-pull between the general, you know, philosophy of the on-demand, you know, sharing economy, which is I want it fast and I want it now, you know, and, and when you trickle in something like safety or helmets, it can be a really difficult piece to deploy. And, you know, if you try to do it the right way, you might be putting yourself out of the competitive ring with an individual that, you know, hey, I just want to use this one. I want to use the, whatever I can get to as quick as possible. So it's a complicated solve. When you factor in the realities of societal requirements, safety requirements, insurance requirements, municipality requirements, where's the sharing economy going? It just seems the, the, the faster this grows, the more restrictions, especially on the local level, that, that are coming down this industry. We've seen the scooter market, I'll just say point blank, in my opinion, has collapsed. We can look to the public markets, look at the revenue from Bird, and then I talk to some individuals that say, oh, you should see the private data at Lime. They're growing. That's, that's private data, but the, the, the Bird data is very public. It just seems like that that market collapsing. Where's the sharing economy going? Whew. So I, I would hope that at some point we reach some level of standardization, at least on the, the regulatory level, because, again, talking about our earlier comments of scalability, you know what? I can't tell you, Grayson, how many, you know, three, four hundred vehicle fleets uh, of scooters or e-bikes that I, I used to work with and have now been either put out of business by the permit regulations of the city that they're, you know, that they launched in. Or, you know, taken over by one of the big names in the shared scooter space because they can't make ends meet because they're expected, you know, from an insurance perspective, let's talk about Miami for a second, you know, which, by the way, is not too different than Santa Monica, um, at least with regards to the limits of insurance required for shared scooter operators. You know, you're asking it's sometimes a mom and pop kind of young scooter operation, maybe 100 to 300 scooters to purchase a $10 million limit of insurance which could cost upwards of, you know, in the seven figures. You know, even with the most competitive rates, we we're talking about likely a seven figure policy for that level of insurance capacity. Capacity, again, is supply of insurance limit that's being provided. So at a 10 mil mark at one of the most high risk and, and, and unknown verticals that insurers are providing coverage for, you've got a very overpriced policy or underpriced. We have yet to determine if that's, you know, where that's going. Cause again, we have a data shortage on this front. However, the, you know, we, we don't see any scalable assistance for these smaller operators. It, it almost lends itself to only, to there only being two, three, four big brands and that's it. A small brand can't survive with a, a seven figure policy spend. As fast as you raise it, you're, you're paying it to the insurance company. As fast as you raise it, you're paying it to the insurance company. So that leads to the consolidation. We're seeing it. We're seeing tier mobility. They were consolidating individuals for a while, but now they're facing economic headwinds. So we just get to the point where there's, say, a handful of, of shared operators that just run through a platform. Perhaps Uber does some more acquisitions or 
or they or they just determine that this market's not here or lift decides to continue to be lift and they just trying to consolidate the market was that what's going to happen i see there being no choice because unless there are you know one of the things i've suggested a lot on the municipal level is scale you know um uh, is is revenue based limit requirements you know if you're dealing with a smaller company if you're dealing with you know someone who's got an employee staff of less than 10 they've been operating a scooter share since 2017 or the beginning and you're now forcing them to jump from what was, you know, maybe a million dollars of, of limit to 10 million because the permit requirement says so. I, I, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be some sort of a variance between what, you know, say a bird, a lime or a, or a tier. You know, I was going to say spin, but that's tier. You know, what they have to purchase is a global scooter sharing company versus just your, your local Florida, California operator that's just trying to make money and provide a good service. You know, I think that there needs to be attention drawn to that. Well, you're thinking like a capitalist and, and an entrepreneur. You're not thinking like a politician. <laughs> That's the big disconnect there. Yeah, that might be true. And, you know, honestly, you, you could lend credence to the fact that there there are safety concerns. You know, one of the big things that that is a true factor here is that a lot of the older generations, you know, especially in Santa Monica and Miami, were not pleased with the call it scooter revolution. They didn't like everything on the sidewalks or in their way. And, you know, a lot of that comes down to what the legislators have to deal with from their constituents, not to mention safety. You know, again, we're, we've talked about data a lot here today. The data on safety, yes, I mean, the figures I gave you on, you know, incidents involving sidewalks, scooters, e-bikes is, is accurate. But again, we're, we're, you know, you're comparing what, maybe seven years, five years of data against your typical underwriting process and in insurance that has 40, 50 years of proven underwriting data. I mean, let like take, you know, throw out the industry vertical itself. If you want the ironclad, you know, status quo of what insurance companies use to make predictive modeling, they need at least five years. We're, we're like maybe at five years. You know, I say that because a lot of models have changed their telematics, their data. They might have been around for more than five years, but their ability to give you that data might not be that you know, strong or at least continuous for the entirety of their operation. Right. And then you can't properly underwrite the risk. And then you have a, a collapsing, failing market. And then the whole thing goes because without insurance, it doesn't go. So in addition to the, the sharing economy, you're, you also play the autonomous vehicle space. You're, you're insuring autonomous vehicle companies. I also want to mention you're also insuring autonomous trucking companies. That market has been tight for a long time. Munich Re really kind of stepped out years ago to try and explore and incubate it. There was some stuff done through Lloyd's and, 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 and Zurich. How's that market currently looking today from an underwriting perspective? Is there more capacity in the market than there was years ago? I know, I know Chubb is starting to look into it as well. Mm -hmm. There's definitely more capacity in that marketplace than there was. And it, it seems to be that insurers are more willing to lend themselves you know, to these to the right exposures in this space because they see it as the future. They see it as a much more, as a safer bet in getting, you know, a lot of this is how we're using our time. And when it comes to autonomous vehicles, you know, there's many reports that would validate the fact that, they, that you know, autonomous level of driving is going to be a part of our lives in the next 10 years. And so for carriers to stay ahead of the curve, they do have to invest in this. So yes, you've seen, you know, an uptick in carriers willing to write the risks, you know, in my opinion, they're still playing it extremely conservative. Many carriers, quite frankly, um, like to still see an engineer and, a, and a, a, an employee slash engineer. Many times they're the same of the actual AI in the vehicle at all times. 
because it does ensure a certain level of continuity with the technology. Because of course, it's always not going to, there's going to be issues. It's not going to work. An interesting complication I do want to bring up too, Grayson, is that what you've seen within autonomous vehicles is a subset that's very, it's growing very quickly of remote driving. So you have a lot of companies now piggybacking sort of off, off the AI environment and going into this remote driving atmosphere, which to me almost, you know, I can see why it's a value add, but it is almost taking back a little bit of the growth that autonomous vehicles are seeing because how, how, does, how do autonomous vehicles get good at what they're doing? They run the same route 100,000 times. That's how they get better and precise with their models. When we're offering other, you know, in other words, we're taking up some of that bandwidth with people who are sitting in Arizona driving vehicles from a remote destination. You're not only encouraging yourself to have uh, what could be a very significant cyber incident with regards to ransom, because cyber policies are usually only financially backed policies and that they only pay out financial losses. So you throw in the bodily injury piece of this, you know, you, 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 you're complicating the situation. Not that I don't think some of these models are interesting and unique, but to me, I, I see AI developing well. There are a lot of carriers stepping into the space. There are a lot of insure techs focused on it. But again, as the economy itself kind of splits between AI and this kind of quasi AI, I think we're kind of taking a step back a little bit in understanding, you know, the true flow of how the claims and how the, the real improvement over human driving, you know, what that will eventually be. Because again, if you're, if you're remote, you still got a human being driving the car. Teleops remote driving scares me. I'll tell you something, and I'm, and I'm going I'm to thank you. I'm going to remove the company's name for security privacy reasons. Years ago, I met with home. I met with Homeland Security, and they were asking me different questions about autonomy and autonomous vehicles. And we started speaking about this one company that was doing teleoperations. And the, the gentleman from Homeland said to me, "You're never going to believe it. We went and checked the facility out. We walked right in. There was no security. And he said I could put a gun to their head and take over those fleet of vehicles." And he goes, now I got a terrorist hostage situation because the companies that, and they still don't have the security place. Think about that. You walk into a building, you put a gun to somebody's head, you take over a fleet of vehicles. You've got a terrorist situation on your hand for, for your neck of the woods. You've got a major risk and that's not being looked at. And the other risk aspect that's not talked about enough is all the cellular networks go down. T-Mobile had a big outage yesterday. Okay. Oh, we triangulate the networks. Ask anybody who has a cell phone, probably every individual, you know. Sometimes they don't work. Then what happens? That's why you need the vehicle to operate on its own. Can you even insure for teleops with just the the the, the story I told you from from when I met with Homeland Security to to the to the networks? Has this become uninsurable at some point? No, I mean I I think I think that depends on our 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 human counterparts and their ability to cause havoc, especially on the digital side. So I like while I appreciate your story, Grayson, I I actually think the threat is much worse from a cyber perspective. I think the threat of somebody, you know, 12 year old who knows the computer better than you or I jumps in there, hacks the system, holds them for ransom when they have human beings in the vehicle. You now have a brand new slice of cyber insurance that that underwriters likely haven't even begun to understand. And so, yes, is it is it is it obtainable? Absolutely. For the right price. But again, this is another subset of the industry that we are complicating, you know, with the exposure basis that we're dealing with, the unknowns involved. And yes, is it insurable? Absolutely. But it's going to be overpriced at this part in time because of the relatively unknown factors. Like you you brought up one story, I brought up another. There, there are a lot of ways that model could 
you know, really kind of blow up cyber insurance or, or, or even just a simple kidnap ransom policy. You know, I wouldn't say kidnap ransom is in the, the realm of a hard market, but cyber insurance most definitely is. Is there even enough capacity in the cyber market? And, do, and when you insure an autonomous vehicle slash autonomous trucking company, is it mandatory that the enterprise says, okay, this is great, but we got to put a cyber policy on top of it? Very typically, the way the policies are structured is that, you know, it, it is a much more comprehensive approach that's necessary on an autonomous. If we're speaking specifically, I mean, we give our case of the remote driving. It, it, it does play into that as well. You know, being that you have employee or, or drivers driving remote does separate, say, your board of directors a little bit more from the negligence that could be, you know, kind of attached to them in kind of the worst case of situations. But when you look at AI vehicles and the development of the adequate risk risk management profile for that, yes, you have to take everything into consideration. You have to take the cyber exposure the vehicles could have, even from an AI basis. Can they can can the technology be stolen? Can the vehicle itself be ransomed? You know, can can passengers be kept there? But you also have to look at it from this, that from an AI perspective, the 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 technology is the brand. And the technology in the brand is how much better are we than driving at driving or transporting individuals than another human being. And this is this is as opposed to a model where you have W2s enacting your strategy, you have now technology enacting your strategy. Your liability as a board of directors as a company is much stricter because your model is much more direct. It is a much more direct result of your design and technology because that is the brand. And so setting up the, the correct IP insurance, cyber technology, you know, directors and officers coverage all to work together comprehensively is of the utmost importance. And a lot of that really does require working with the same carrier. And the reason it, and you know, yes, does that limit the market somewhat? Absolutely. This is, this is, these are the trenches of insurance right now. But what you do in that situation is you eliminate, you know, I, I've sat in hundreds of claims meetings in my career. And the general rule of thumb, and this is not always the case, but this is general rule of thumb is that when you have lines of liability insurance, you you generally would like to put them all with the same carrier. So if there is, and it, it really depends on the, the, the variety of gray areas you might come across. We are talking about the absolute farthest, most maximum gray area industries possible. So you want to make sure in the event of a claim, whether it's cyber, auto liability, directors and officers, or all three, which can be a piece of the equation, that we don't have one carrier here saying, no, that's not my problem, that's your problem. This carrier here says, no, that's not my problem, it's actually this carrier's problem. We don't want that discussion taking six, eight months, and then eventually somebody figures it out. We want coverage and, and the allocation of liability to be assigned immediately. And when you when you when you structure a platform, you know, with sim with the same carrier across as many lines as you can, specifically in this AI context, you really eliminate that doubt factor as to who's going to take the responsibility. You invite the, you eliminate the eeny, meeny, miny, mo game, essentially. Correct. Correct. It, it's not always the case that, again, Grayson, that'd be a perfect world. You know, that's a perfect world looking at answer, uh, old school insurance where, you know, we've got your bot policies, we've got your carriers that will write X, Y, and Z policies, throw it all together. We're in a market with autonomous vehicles where, yes, there are carriers that will do that, but the amount of carriers that will do that are significantly less than your, you know, mom and pop sneaker short store, you know, looking for a business owner policy. So it is a much more involved and complicated process, but it absolutely can be done. How much of a concern to the, the the large underwriters is IP theft? We've seen so many public examples of IP theft, especially going to China. And once it's over there, it's it's not coming back. But it's a it's a huge risk. And they can't even subrogate. Yeah, 
it's a huge risk and it's an incredibly pricey insurance policy. I will say out of, you know, and it's not a mandatory purchase, you know, it's a discretionary purchase. And would it be very important to a business model? Yes. However, right now that's, that's a market I'd say that is, you know, pricing insurance at unattainable levels. It, it really has to be a true uh, culture of safety and risk management, and maybe safety is too much of a word there, but really, I mean, safety, safeguarding of your intellectual property, because, you know, we're talking about very significant premiums here um, for a piece of your operation that's not mandatory. And I say that because, you know, you mentioned before, we're dealing with a potential recession. We're dealing with, you know, lots of cost cutting across the board. You know, when it comes to what you need to do for the state, the city, versus what you need to do with your company, you know, I will always recommend that we go to the, the most, you know, adequate risk ma ma management methods possible. I will always encourage my clients to, to pursue these types of risk. Are they going to purchase them, lion's share of them for IP insurance? Do not. To me, that's stupid. Because if you, if you no, seriously, if, you, if we're going, we're going into a potential economic recession, banks will collateralize. There's a lot of really good, they'll collateralize loans against the value of, of an IP portfolio. And I've sat in several of those conversations, I'm sure you have. They are, are you insured for this risk? We'll loan against it, but are you insured for that risk? And there's, a, and we're talking billions of dollars of appetite that I've seen out there. So we're going potential, and you have a potential, it's called a, a credit line here. Why wouldn't you insure in a case a, a downturn hits that you can go tap that credit line? It's, it, you know, it, again, it's a, it's a complicated budget conversation. Do I, I agree with you that it certainly is a silly thing to, to discount? Absolutely. However, what, in the grand scheme of the risk management conversation, when, when you're dealing with you know, your auto liability, you're dealing with your DNO, also in an incredibly hard market. You're you're potentially contemplating going public, which generally can take your DNO private company premium and multiply it by a factor of four to ten times. You know, you're you're dealing with a lot of cost pressures. And in the in the world of buying decisions, not that everybody doesn't go this direction. I'm I'm speaking about tendencies here. This one tends to be put as less of a priority when really it should be focused upon a lot more heavily. This is where you and I will agree. If you're going to build a company, you're going to try and take the public markets, you better hope and pray you've got a really great risk manager on your staff that understands all the, the nuances there. And risk changes when you insure. How does it, we obviously know how the risk changes from when you're testing to you're deploying with a driver in to, f to fully driverless when you have no driver in the vehicle. So we, we understand the risk profile there. How does it change from the insurance perspective? Is this the DNO going public moment where, all right, two to two to ten x your insurance? What does that look like? It's not a bad analogy. Yes, it's uh, it's definitely always safer for the the earlier stages to have an individual or engineer in the vehicle to be just in test track phase. You know, as soon as you get it out in the road, you got third party exposure, you got bodily injury exposure. You 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 know, you're out there in the world testing your technology and and, and really seeing if it can prove its metal. And that's where the carrier pool itself that's willing to insure those risks is, is smaller. You know, it's odd considering this is sort of like a graduation process. You know, we're getting better and better at this and we're ready to go. And actually now a carrier that's insuring us because we used to have an engineer in the vehicle no longer wants to play along. Now that's, you know, that, those are the technical rules, Grayson. That's why, you know, I really enjoy my job because to me that, that presents a very normal day-to-day -day challenge for me and that we need to communicate with our carrier at this upcoming renewal or during this this time of change and discuss, hey, you know, we've been good to you. What's our loss record? What have we noticed? You know, one of the biggest messages I give to my operators is, you know, maybe we've had a good claims year, maybe we haven't. But what have you noticed? What are your what's your data telling you? 
Like, let's go through it together. Let's talk about where your strengths are. Let's talk about, you know, going back to shared economy models, who are your good drivers, who are your bad drivers? You know, let's invest in the process a little bit because we need to take that narrative to our carrier. That's why I said these are tendencies, Grayson. With the right narrative, my team can go to that same carrier that doesn't want to write, you know, a particular you know, subset of, of AI or, you know, level of, of, of autonomous vehicle and discuss, hey, this is what we've seen. You know, this is why we are different than the data you have. And that's why, as to your point, a, a very, you know, dedicated risk manager is paramount to a successful operation, because if you just choose to let the underwriter and the, and the community just tell you how it's going to go, you, you're going to always be losing that battle. But you need to pair that risk manager with a great broker such as yourself is willing to sit down there, fight for your client to ensure the right policies are in place. I'm really curious. Mo mobility's changing. We we talked about today. We talked about sharing economy. We we talked about Uber and Lyft drivers. We talked about electrification. We talked about autonomy. Do, do the underwriters have teams in there that are looking at okay, what's next in the, in the future of transportation? What's next in mobility, so they can get they can get ahead of it. So it's not like uh oh, wait, this new this new emerging trend of mobility is coming. Do they have you want to call them SWAT teams or internal teams that are thinking about what all the new risks are and they could develop products when those event industries eventually scale in spades. I would say right now, uh, the insurance community is dealing with a short supply of good talent, just like a lot of different businesses are. You know, underwriting teams that used to be five to 10 people are now two to three people. And so what, what you do, not only does that impact turnaround times, you know, again, we're on the on-demand economy. A lot, of, a lot of clients want things fast, can be complicated by workers. So I guess my point is, you know, they, they're almost so busy worried about what's right in front of them that it can be difficult. And I'm not necessarily fully blaming them because again, this is, could be a short staffing conversation in and of itself. But you know, are, they, are they completely focused on the future? I would say not always. It depends on what carrier you're talking to. Some of them, yes, absolutely. Some of them are innovating. Some of them are looking to you know, attend InsureTech in New York and, and so on and so forth and pay attention to the new models that are coming forward, the new underwriting plans. You know, just the other day, I saw a new... You know, um, you know, website-based carrier for, for autonomous vehicles to <clears throat> took a quick look at it, you know, got a little bit of funding, you know, so it, it's, <clears throat> it's not just paying attention to the big dogs in the insurance community that are, that are writing these risks, but also fostering a lot of these younger appetites um, and bringing them into the fold and doing what it takes to, to really get them ready for, for what the exposure is they're dealing with. So it's a constantly evolving battle and someone, you know, for someone like myself, it's, it's, it's a job where I have to spend, you know, considerable portion of my time evaluating and lending, you know, perspective to prospective carriers that want to potentially join the ring. And l let's not forget, and we're going to go back in the, in the insurance way back machine here. Lloyd's of London started as Lloyd's coffee shop where the maritime would get together, how to price it. And it was all done in a coffee shop. Lloyd's coffee shop became the world famous Lloyd's London. And you're right. You have to keep your eyes on, the, on those new emerging underwriters because you never know. They could be have become the next Lloyd's London. We don't know unless we give them a shot. Insurance is a, is a fascinating industry. It's one that I find fascinating. Other interviews, oh, it's boring. No, it's a great industry. If you're looking for a job, insurance is a, is a great place to be. Ed, in your opinion, what is the future of insurance as it relates to mobility? Does it go on demand? Is it a, is it a per mile fee? What is the future of mobility insurance? I think it, it's contingent on a lot of items. I agree with you on the tort reform. I certainly think that social inflation is an unnecessary factor in the troublesome market we're dealing with right now. But with regards to the general future, what I see is right now, likely 
Grayson, your auto policy, your home. A lot of this stuff is based off of numbers and a lot of educated guesses, and it's worked for a very long period of time. And I see us generally moving in the direction over the next 10 years of, you know, Allstate has this program, Geico has this program, Progressive has the plugins that, that actually monitor your mile to mile driving activity and does give you feedback. It does give you moment to moment pricing. And I see a general trend. I think we've kind of exhausted our good faith period of that we can trust the math and you know the math might not apply to every single person, but it will apply to the group as a whole. I think we've sort of moved past that or evolved past that again for maybe some unnecessary reasons, like you know the social inflation and, and, and litigation issues that 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 do that do come about. However, I see an eventual change to a lot more individuals using that that piece of the underwriting puzzle to make sure you know you know there are good drivers. You know what a lot of statistics say: fifty percent of premium goes of premiums collect, uh, carriers collect go towards 95% of the losses from, from the bad groups of people that they likely shouldn't have been insuring in the first place, that they didn't know enough information about. And so I think this lends itself to a little bit more over-the-shoulder monitoring of each individual driver, and, and, and quite frankly, much to the benefit of most of us. You know, it does feel scary. It's intrusive, no doubt about it. I do see it as a likely, you know, a necessary call it evil, if you will, in moving towards, you know, opening up the marketplace to more insurance carriers. Because otherwise, if we keep if we keep playing on these old antiquated means of underwriting, we're going to find ourselves with, you know, not not just overly priced insurance, but an extremely limited marketplace. You know, you're not going to be able to cancel it. You're going to be able to say, hey, I hate this, but guess what? I can't do anything about it. So I see us moving into this realm of more individuals using the dongles and more tracking techniques with themselves and taking more agency about their insurance premiums, even just on a personal level. And then I ultimately think that autonomous vehicles, whether it be trucking or private passenger vehicles, rideshare, I think the data will get good enough that we will eventually, maybe it's 10 years, 20 years, but eventually, you know, that per mile tracking of your insurance will eventually just turn into, you know, we are mostly autonomous and we, and the carrier side understands the autonomous better than we do individuals at this point. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, I, I, I see the insurance market flattening at that point in time. Now, where that happens and what roles come into play over the next 10, 15 years, you know, will certainly complicate that. But I, I see that as a natural trajectory towards, you know, some sort of equilibrium we might be able to establish in the auto insurance market in particular. There's no doubt that better data will give you better rates, but you mentioned the plugins. I'm concerned from a privacy perspective. And if I'm a divorce attorney, I'm having a field day. Oh, you're having an affair. I'm going to subpoena all that data. We're yet to see a court case on that. But you're going to open up Pan Pandora's box. And at the end, as we said earlier, lawyers are going to win. How do we get around the privacy issue? It's a great question. I, you know, candidly, that's why, you know, I, I like to caveat what I said with just, you know, there, there's going to be some sort of middle ground in between everything I just, you know, throw, threw at you. You know, yes, privacy is going to be a concern. It's already a concern. You know, there, there are a lot of rules and regulations that would suggest that if you're an operator in California, you cannot track your renters at all, even with the proper disclaimers. You talk to any rideshare lawyer in the state of California, they will tell you it is illegal for telematics to be installed in vehicles in California. Now, do, do a lot of operators do it? Absolutely. Why do they do it? Because they have to do it. The difference between their static pricing that they would get with a national interstate or companies that don't require telematics, we're talking about tenfold differences in price. 
Not to mention your understanding of your business. If you're not investing in telematics, you don't know who your drivers are. You don't know how to control risks or stop claims. So this privacy conversation is going to be part of this equation for as long as this equation is on the table. At the end of the day, it's all going to come down to economics. And we, we barely started to scratch the surface on insurance today. It's been a wonderful, insightful conversation. Perhaps next time we'll get into the privacy of, of telematics. That'll be a great one. And for today, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? On the personal side, if you're a driver for Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, invest in yourself. Take a look at what your options are. You know, Uber and Lyft, all the websites, they have great recommendations as to where you should go and insure yourself. But I would, my best recommendation is to take this seriously. It's your business. It's your, it, it, invest in yourself. Invest in protecting yourself. It might be a difficult justification when you're talking about increased costs with gas, so on and so forth. But the pros far outweigh the cons in protecting yourself in this stage of the sharing economy as a driver, as a business. You know, the biggest, I'd say the biggest mistake I see across businesses in rideshare is that they don't take the insurance seriously enough. They're not invested in driver behavior scoring. They're not invested in, in pushing their claims down. Are they invested in lowering their premiums? Absolutely. Who isn't? But the real day-to-day, -day, the real, you know, in the trenches, what do we need to do to improve your, your portfolio of risk and, and drive a narrative to the marketplace that we are different than everyone else? really requires a lot of due diligence. And I would, I would, I would ask every you know, fleet operator, autonomous vehicle company, you know, on, the, on the call listening, you know, this is where you need to invest your time. You need to have dedicated resources to this or it's going to come back and bite you. Ed said it beautifully. I agree with what Ed said. Invest in yourself, invest in your business. Do not cut corners, do not take chances. We live in a litigious society where insurance, insurance plays a very positive role in protecting your family and your business. Today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today. The future is and has always been insurance. Ed, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thanks so much, Grayson. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with Jigger Shaw, Director of the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. He'll discuss how LPO provides loans to support EV manufacturing under the Advanced Technology Vehicles Manufacturing Loan Program. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.